Neil Doherty is the author of World Cup 1998, Scotland's Story, which of course ended after the first round, so it is a great time capsule of my first World Cup, uh, 1998. I remember it well. And I wanted to start just before I ask you about your memories. I had collated both Brazil goals in my head for 20 years I thought that Tom Boyd had scored an own goal at the near post from a corner. Yeah, it didn't play out like that, did it? it no. Was, it was a passage of play that involved Danielson and, um, and others, Cafu. Yeah, and then it just it um, came in off the very um, unfortunate. Um, yeah. yeah. But it's incredible how my mind have played tricks on me because I remember vividly watching Scotland Brazil um, and perhaps the opening ceremony at school. I was 10. They put it on in the lunchroom, and I, I remember exactly where I was. So when I was reading about Scotland playing Brazil in the opening game of the 1998 World Cup, I was right there with you, and then I realised 23 years of my life had passed. Does it feel like two decades have passed since the France World Cup? Well, thank you for your kind words, and that, that, that was the intention of the book. And as I think it was about trying to... I couldn't remember it properly. That was one of the main... Um, motivations that I did. I couldn't remember or recall the tournament as vividly as I wanted to be able to. So that that was one of the main motivations for trying to achieve the book, put, put it on the record. I suppose that, that that Brazil match in particular is hard to come by. Footage of it is there, but it's hard to come by. So it, it does, unfortunately, seem it seems longer to me, actually, than oh, 23 yeah. years. Well, you're I you're in 96. Scotland haven't, haven't been there ever since, so... Well, that is why it's, it's a very shrewd time to write a book about Scotland and the World Cup. And you note that in 54, 58, 74, 78, 82, 86, 90... My, my first World Cup that I can remember was Mexico 86. I, I was absolutely immersed in it. I was a small, small boy. I was already a massive collector of the Panini. I don't know if you yeah, shared yeah. that obsession growing up. Uh, not an obsession, but I did got got need. Yes, got got need was for me. It was an obsession. I've always been a football collector, whether that be programs, magazines, anything. And, and, and Panini was just to me. It was was my life. So well, you will you will be at home in the football library because we have magazines for days, fanzines, and completed sticker books, including the rare printed players. Um, but. You say that you were at um, Hamden for a game against Bulgaria. Archie McPherson was not a fan of that game. I imagine you didn't. You don't even care about the results. You were actually watching Scotland on the terraces as a kid. Yeah, my first my first Scotland game, Scotland v Bulgaria, nineteen eighty six, was was also Andy Roxburgh's first game in charge. So there's when I came to write the book, the more I looked at my own life in relation to attending football. My, my own experience as a football fan, the, the subject came to life, really, you know, I looked at, because Andy Roxburgh, obviously, Craig Brown's predecessor, Craig Brown, uh, and Andy Roxburgh provided the Scotland national team with a lot of stability and, and um, achieved 1990, 92, we didn't qualify for 94, so which led to Roxburgh losing his job, but 96, Craig Brown got us to Euro 96, and then obviously World Cup 98, so when you look at the current state of, of historically what Scotland have achieved in terms of major tournament qualification, that was, uh, as, as Archie McPherson puts it, it was kind of a golden 
era for Scotland. The first game, obviously, I did, I wouldn't have known necessarily off the top of my head that Scotland v Bulgaria. It was a 0-0 draw. Um, my dad took me to Hamden, I think September 86. Um, it was also Kenny Dalglish came off the bench for his 101st game, so that was quite quite significant. Scotland's most capped player, obvious icon. So, but yeah, and to learn, I only learned in retrospect that it was it was Andy Roxburgh's first game in charge. So it was almost like my own life. My own life had parallels to the, the that story, Scott, the France '98 story, which obviously culminated in Scotland playing in the biggest game in the global football calendar, the opening match of the World Cup. And the great thing about your book is that you go behind the scenes, helped by this World Cup diary video. Uh, which must have sold very well in Scotland at the time. They put on camera what was going on the week before the game against Brazil. So you do see behind the scenes, and it's a very pressurised atmosphere, not helped by what went on against Brazil. Because it was the opening ceremony, the pre-match ritual of the warm-up had been disrupted, and what you write is almost shocking. It's almost a restraint of trade. Incredible, wasn't it? They weren't allowed to uh, warm up. For, for those who don't know, the... the, the typical FIFA really the opening ceremony took precedent over the players warming up so the FIFA in the Stade de France the players were expected to warm up in a, a room with a pillar in the middle of it for the biggest game of their lives uh, billions of people watching but yeah the World Cup diary yeah I start to refer to that about I don't know about halfway to two thirds of the way through the book because I mean, it's ahead of its time for me, although it's, it's shot in a kind of 90s way. Craig Brown and Andy Roxburgh, before, Andy Roxburgh actually did one of those video diaries for Euro 92 as well, so they were really quite forward-thinking. A lot of that footage is just, how else would you would you be able to have, have seen the, the hotels? And even, even if you were to have interviewed guys, you, you wouldn't have got that detail of what they were wearing, where they were. One of the big things that I didn't have was a, a chronology. Um, other World Cup diaries, like, for example, Glenn Hoddle did a 98 diary where it's... Got it's, him uh, cro- 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 It's... Cro- well, uh, a book. It's just, but it's so, so he'd actually... And Mick McCarthy did one in 02 where, where it's... For Ireland, where it actually day-by-day, where, where there wasn't... That didn't... That wasn't in existence for, for France 98 for Scotland, but I had this terrific footage from the SFA. It was a video originally, VHS, the SFA uploaded it to YouTube during the pandemic. Quite a lot of stuff appeared on YouTube and during the pandemic, I think probably because people had time in their hands and a wealth of things appeared that hadn't been there previously. Warm-up games and actual qualification matches, you know, it was it was all there. It was like a giant jigsaw and gradually I realised that the whole thing w- was there, really. The whole story is what it says in the tin. It's, it's, it, it doesn't really deviate from what I say it is. It's Scotland's World Cup 98 story. But it's the story within the story because you do go through all the group stages and you talk about what happened in the second round and beyond. Uh, Just before I forget to ask you, Qatar, you're not going to go, are you? I don't know if I would have the money to go, but I don't know if you've read the book um, The Ugly Game. You better have. have. Uh, Well, I haven't read The Ugly Game. I've read The Fall of the House of FIFA, but I read the big insight article that seemed to go on for thousands and thousands of words, which got turned into the ugly game. So, yes, yeah. I know of what you uh-huh. speak. Uh-huh. I mean, I went down the rabbit hole during when, in writing the book. 
obviously devoted a chapter to the, the France 98, the, the FIFA controversy was the tickets, the, the internet was a new thing and I'm not going to name names but <laughs> big, big FIFA people um, allegedly monopolised the tickets and yeah. fans didn't get very many tickets and it was a huge thing at the time and the more I read, there's a, one, one book uh, in particular which was written at the time on 99, I think, How They Stole the Game by David Yallop. Yep. Fanta- fantastic. And it look, looks at the 94 World Cup and Havalange in the background. And, uh, and then, I don't know if you've experienced this, Johnny, where you kind of go down the rabbit hole with that subject, where, where I started to read How They Stole the Game and I couldn't put that down and it became, that was the one tangent that I went on when writing the book because it wasn't, my editor ultimately advised that I take out some of that. Um, what did I call the chapter? Blattered. Yes, so, blattered. Very good. Because it was the time yeah, when Havelanger was handing over and Platini got involved as well, which yeah. is interesting to note. Yeah, I saw, saw her, the FIFA exit. There was the big um, FIFA um, Congress, wasn't it? Is it the 51st Congress where it was really significant because Havelange was handing over after 20-odd years to his, his, his deputy, his, yeah, the people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Blatter, who lasted until 15, didn't he, 2015, when the FBI ultimately said dismantled his administration. So, aye, uh, it was it was a significant moment off the pitch, and I hadn't realised just how significant it had been off the pitch for football until I started to look deeper at, at the tournament. Yeah, you asked so, why yeah. I don't go down the rabbit hole. I'm not into true crime. I'm not into it at all, but this is a criminal racket. Philippe Leclerc has written, it's The Sopranos, but with worse people. I liked that yeah, line. Yeah, fantastic quote, lovely quote, yeah, from O'Claire. I haven't read his book, is it FIFA Gate? But the, the documentaries are there. If, if you can't, if those who probably don't want to read a book, go on to Amazon Prime, it's, it's on the record now. It's sad, but that's what happened. However... You're in a difficult position because if Scotland do qualify for the World Cup, which there's every chance they will, um, I can't remember who's in Scotland's group for the qualifiers. Yeah, we've got Denmark and Austria, so I don't know. We didn't get we didn't get off to a great start either. We drew away with Israel, and we drew at home with Austria. We beat the Pharaohs. So, to be honest, Johnny, having looked at Austria and the tournament and Denmark, I think we're struggling. So it means that Andy Robertson will get Christmas off and Scott McTominay will get Christmas off and the yeah, various goals. And Billy Gilmore. That... Billy Gilmore's at Norwich this season. Yeah. He's going to have a good season. I don't, want to write, I don't want to write us off and be the pessimist. Try and be the optimist. I don't think we got off to a great start. Steve Clark has talked it up as if it was the start was OK. He's left us in a position where we need to get... We need to probably beat Denmark. We definitely need to beat them at home and possibly need to take something away. We need to get a result in Austria. It's all looking quite difficult. I think more realistically we should be aiming for the next Euros. The fixtures uh, that are in, at the beginning of September, I imagine you're going to the... Yeah, I've got, I've got my tickets, yep. ...games. Uh, it is... De- oh, are you going to Denmark as well? No, my dad's going over to Copenhagen. Oh, great. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be, be at the home game. Yeah, it is Moldova. Well, obviously, there's three in a week going to Austria as well. That's interesting. Is that right? You've got yeah, three games in a week? Yeah. Uh-huh. Balls. Yep. That's not good. That's but... not. And Austria were quite good in the Euro, weren't they? They I were. Liked them. I think they're, they're, they're helped by RB Salzburg and a mm. lot of positive 
things going on in Austrian football right now. Now you mentioned uh, football, your dad. Football wise. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Not with to do with the far right. You mentioned your dad, who watched Scotland in West Germany in 1974. Does that mean he saw Archie Gemmell play in that tournament? Well, he was at the. That, that was 78. Was that the next one? So was, who played 74? So at, Billy Bremner must have played in 74. Yeah, Brett Bremner, uh, Joe Jordan. Eddie uh, Gray. Very good team. What was significant? He was at the first ever game at the West Fallen. So that had been built, I think, in Dortmund for purpose built for World Cup 74 and um, my dad and I had always wanted to go to the World Cup together and we managed to get tickets for Germany in 2006 and it was the West Fallen and uh, it was a Switzerland game, very difficult to get tickets, we had to settle for Switzerland versus Togo which was the only tickets we could get for in the entirety of the tournament but it was, it was nice for him, symbolic for him to then go back all those years later to the West Fallen in Dortmund. Mm. It was just a shame Scotland hadn't qualified for that World Cup um, in 2006 because they'd been overtaken. Just the nature of modern football means that money talks. And so it is very interesting to note that in 1998, um, can you name the player who was playing in Holland who made the World Cup squad? That was Booth. Booth. How many Celtic players made the World Cup squad? Well, there was Bully, there was McNamara, there was Donnelly, there was Boyd, there was Jonathan Gould. Mm-hmm. There was five off the top of my head here. That's very um, good. And there are three more. I'm not going to ask you to name them. But... Darren Jackson, Josh yeah. McKinley. I know uh-huh. that's seven. That's not bad. It's like you've written a book about it. However, only one <laughs> Rangers player, Gordon Dury. Um, there could have been yeah. two. Can you talk me as quickly as you can through the soap opera Between the Sticks? Yeah, McCoy's and obviously Between the Sticks, Gorham and uh, Leighton. Yeah, it was a massive soap opera. Gorham was a fantastic goalkeeper. He was, it was a, it was sort of, I've written a chapter called Smell the Glove, which is all about the, the soap opera that, that played out and the rivalry between Andy Gorham, who was Rangers kind of nine in the row, nine in a row goalkeeper. So Rangers at that point had a fantastically successful domestic team who had won nine league titles in a row. The 97-98 season, Celtic actually stopped them doing the 10, which is obviously parallels what happened last season, the other way around. And, and Andy Gorham was coming to the end of his Rangers career. Gorham had, a, had an injury during qualification and Leighton had come in. Leighton was, remains Scotland's second most capped player ever. He'd come in and played really well during qualification superbly well, particularly against Sweden at home when we won 1-0 at Ibrox, which was a vital, vital win in the context of the group. So Leighton was, he'd kind of edged ahead slightly in the pecking order. Craig Brown had played Gorham at Euro 96, but Gorham's, I don't know, you can maybe see his head wasn't in the right place either. So both were selected for the, uh, ultimately, the, what would be the final 22 it's not 23, it was 22 back then. So 20, he Gordon was in the final 22 along with Leighton and the squad travelled to the USA and um, news was, was back-channeled to, to Gordon somehow, some way that he wasn't, and I'll look at that in a, bit, in a wee bit of uh, depth in my chapter, but news was back-channeled to Gordon anyway in New York uh, on the, the Scotland 
in the Scotland camp on the eve of France 98 to say that he wouldn't be playing in, in the World Cup opener that Leighton would be favoured in goals and this led to Gorham spectacularly and sensationally quitting the, the Scotland camp so that, that that was that was front page news on the lead up Brown had also left out Ali McCoist who was Scotland's only real natural goal scorer it was, to this day it remains a mystery although he was in his mid 30s and Craig Brown himself has even acknowledged several times now that that was a mistake to leave out Alan McCoist. So there was this soap opera running parallel about Scotland's Rangers players. They were coming to the end, as I said, of, of an era, the nine in a row era, but equally and arguably there, there was three of them in particular who could have done a job and would have done a job And France. The other one being Stuart McCall, who was as experienced as anybody had been to, had scored in the Italian 90, had played brilliantly at Euro 92 and Euro 96, so had three major tournaments under his belt and was also omitted from the final squad. And it all left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth. For those players, they were on the record at the time as not pleased with how it played out. So I look at all that, it was nowhere near as dramatic for Euro 2020. It just shows you the 90s, late 90s were up. A different era for Scottish football. There was a lot to write about. And I'm just looking at the squad from Euro 2020. The goalkeepers are all very old, but the rest of the squad, there's only one member of it over the age of 30, Declan Gallagher of Motherwell. This squad will be together for a few years. Tierney is very young. Adams is very young. Um, John Fleck is probably getting on a bit. Yeah, Gilmore's and David Turnbull is the chap who had a really good season for Celtic. And interestingly, only one player not from the British Isles, uh, Jack Hendry of Ostender. Um, but I, I, Qatar may be a bridge too far, and I don't think Scotland will care so much. I think the next Euros will be very interesting um, because it'll be it'll be spread around the continent again, won't it? UEFA have said they'll never do that again, and it's it's but they're going to up the how many teams? So thirty-two teams, I think. Okay. That that seems a lot when there's only fifty-five nations in UEFA. Yeah, nonsense. But, but obviously, give Scotland a. A good chance if you can't qualify for 32 teams. I think that's the figure, 32. Then you don't deserve to be there, do you? That's right. And So it's not really... So the Euro tournament really starts in the qualifying stages. So everyone's involved. All must have prizes. Um, yeah, they're a good age. They're a good age. Yeah. As there's a lot to be... Oh, and you, you made the point at the, begin, the beginning of the podcast about uh, we have players playing at a high level, a good level, playing week in, week out for top... Premier League clubs, or just Premier League clubs in general. We have John McGinn, we have McTominay, as you mentioned. I mean, John McGinn has been attracting attention from Liverpool. We have Andy Robertson, who needs no introduction. So we have guys playing at a good. And Clark, he, he has found that he's found that magic. He's found that blend. I think of, and, and the players I think want to play for Scotland now. The the, the, the fans really got behind this young squad. There is a feel-good factor again about the Scotland national team that wasn't there for a long time. Uh, I'll do the bad bits before the good bits. It was a 3-0 loss against Morocco with Craig Burley sent off for a tackle from behind that referees had to clamp down on. A draw against Norway, which should have been a win. And then, of course, uh, the loss against Brazil. And then in Euro 2000, Don Hutchinson's goal was not enough to get Scotland to the Euros. When you watched Euro 2000... Um, and watched England collapse once again with all these phenomenal players. Did you point and laugh? No, I was never. I, I didn't ever actively 
support the team playing against England. That, that kind of I suppose there's anyone but England. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really have, never really subscribed to that. I, I think because I've been always been such a fan of English football, I've always been. I mean, Man United. I was drawn to through Alex Ferguson yeah. going down, and I, and I mean, I fell in love with the, the, the Man United team of Fergie and Giggs coming through, and that team with the, with the, with the wingers, Kinchelskis and Giggs, and and just thereafter followed Man United's. I mean, so that in that regards, you know, English football to, to a lot of people in Scotland, they wouldn't actively support. They wouldn't actively support the other team. It's coming home thing. I must say, I think, and I wouldn't say it's just Scot people in Scotland who who have have kind of felt a bit annoyed by by the repetition of it's coming home, which is probably you probably have just that phrase alone. You've probably England has probably cost themselves people who used to not actively support the team that was playing England. I think the whole of Europe by the by the end of Euro twenty twenty was pretty peed off with. It's coming home. Well, something did are. come home. Yobbishness. But I think the, the best argument I heard for why there was crowd trouble at Wembley is because fans couldn't travel abroad. So it was this great parade. But really, that should be the lasting image of the year. Even though the press will probably want to spin it as the mural to Saka and the mural to Rashford because we're all about murals. This country has a problem. Football is not the problem. Society is a problem. The tech side isn't helping. And it, there are several aspects that make me ashamed to be in Britain. I'm a fourth generation immigrant, so I'm not that British, but I am assimilated. Uh, and yes, the it's coming home nonsense, it'll start up again in Qatar. But I'm of the opinion that England should just play their under 12s for the qualifying tournament and not qualify. It's fair. I mean, it's coming home. I mean, I'm interested in football, football history, like yourself, Johnny. So we try and understand. You've mentioned the, the Scottish passing game, the English dribbling game. You've obviously read about the origins of association football, where the rules came from in the modern era. I don't think everybody who's saying, and I don't think Dylan Skinner ever intended it for it to be what it's become, but that phrase alone, it's not going to be dropped. And it's all about unfortunate, I think, because it's been seized upon as a mantra, I suppose, which has turned a lot of people off, I think, to England, England, England at a major tournament, which I was never... I, I would always have watched England as a total neutral and got behind the players that I was watching in the English Premier League that I enjoyed watching week in, week out. Um, I think it's coming... I think maybe... I don't know if how Bill and Skinner feel about it now, but... Ask their accountants. Would... No, I think they, they, they <laughs> do... They... <laughs> They do do a lot of... I actually know someone who knows Frank Skinner very well. And uh, yes, he was very in demand, but he was very tired after that week of uh, getting to the final. But yeah, they wrote it ironically. Yeah, it's coming home. You bet it's coming home. 30 years of hurt, but here we have the hope. Which makes me think of this brilliant line from your book at the very, very beginning. Uh, Vain hope, sharp realism and unimaginable bad luck with flashes of joy. You don't have the monopoly on melancholy. England have had lots of that. But with Scotland, the fact that you haven't got past the third, first round of a major tournament, uh, a World Cup tournament, means that you do, yeah. maybe you do have the monopoly on melancholy, and we don't. Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, I've, I've written about the group, and the, the group was a fascinating group in, in France 98 for Scotland. We obviously had Egil Olsen, the Norwegian uh, manager. We had Brazil, who 
need no introduction and the Moroccans but I mean the Moro- the Moroccans the, the, the Scotland just that tournament just encapsulated everything that had gone before you know we had we we, we performed really well against Brazil and Norway done ourselves justice and then went to the Morocco game and we looked like an amateur team so it was the inability of, of Scotland in that tournament to cope with the, the brand of football that, that they didn't, we just didn't understand the question I suppose that, that, that Morocco put to us and that, that just typifies everything that has gone but look at look at what just happened in Euro 2020 we, we, we were subject to the, the two of the goals of the tournament um, and, I don't, and I don't want to want it to be Scotland, but Schick's goal and Modric's goal come at, both come at the the crucial crucial moments. That the spectacular goals you mentioned the XG that I mean that they're not they're not high at all. That there's no XG percentage against Modric strike and Schick's. I mean it's barely worth even discussing XG, is it? So uh, that's Scotland at a major tournament. But on the other hand, there's nine points. There's always nine points to be played for, and ultimately we're just never good enough to get enough points that, I think that's the way we have to look at it That's and I'm sure that's the way Steve Clark will look at it there was nine points to be played for we weren't good enough to get enough points to get out of the group uh, You mentioned Jim Layton's phenomenal save from Ronaldo but you also mentioned that he was beaten at the near post for the first goal against Morocco he was lobbed for the second A lot of people really bashed Jim Layton and Matt was one of them without, but after that performance against Morocco but actually really studying the game which I obviously I did to, to write my book I'm not so sure that Leighton was so dramatically at fault as, as he appeared to be in his autobiography he, he thinks he was really terribly at fault for the the second Morocco goal he was beating his near post in the first for the first goal which was a any keeper can be beaten at the near post it was a terrific strike it, it was more to do with Colin Henry's never beaten in the, was hadn't been beaten in the air f- for a bit two years for Scotland and then suddenly Morocco are playing this brand of football where they're chipping the ball around they're all spectacularly quick they're running in behind slight tackles coming from everywhere just this really unorthodox style that Scotland couldn't cope with and the second goal is just again such an unorthodox strike by the Moroccan it's another lobbed chipped lobbed ball over the top David Weir's caught out and the guy runs in behind and it's like a, it's almost like a golf shot with his foot. Yeah. It's hard to discuss. It's, like a it it's, it's a strange, strangest shot. So, so Leighton, Leighton was his tactic always was to race off the line. He had so much success and to narrow the angle, block the ball early with his body. And he, time and again throughout his career, that's what he did successfully. And suddenly this Moroccans hit the ball far earlier than any anybody would in Europe. Far earlier. And, and, and it's such a strange shot that Leighton doesn't really know what to do he just sticks his arms up in the air and it, I mean it looks terrible but I think it was just the end of the road for Scotland I, in terms of their France 98 journey and didn't have the answer to, to that style of football unorthodox style played by Morocco and that Morocco game sadly remains the last competitive fixture against a non-European team that Scotland has played. Don't worry, this millennium, you are surely going to have one. Maybe in Mexico, maybe in Uruguay, but it will certainly be in the next 10 years. I just wanted to quickly mention uh, the Estonia 
game. Uh, you were at Rugby Park, I imagine. Were you? Were you at Rugby Park for the home game in March '97? No, I, I, I wasn't. And this is one. This is one of the reasons why I was so keen to write this book. I felt as if there was a real take. So that was a sellout at Hamden. I didn't, didn't get myself a ticket. I would have been back and forward to Rugby Park um, to watch Kilmarnock, but there was a kind of taking for granted notion about Scotland in the World Cup at that point. We had obviously we'd qualified for five in a row and then missed USA 94 and then World Cup 1998. You know, we, we kind of thought we would qualify. You know, we had, we had done five out of six and that is, so six out of seven no big deal, you know, we'll, we'll get there, you know, and, and the, the whole thing passed me by. The, the whole thing, like, whether it be qualification, the tournament itself, I watched it, I watched it all, but thinking that there'll be the next time, you know, Euro 96 was about the same, you know, that, that, or there'll always be the next time. I'll go the next time or I'll, I'll experience it the next time. I don't have the money to travel to France this time or to go to England eh, for the Euro. I'll go the next time. And the next time never came, Johnny. Oh, it's the world's smallest violin. Sorry. You do write this, this book, World Cup 1998, Scotland's story. And it's incredible to see how 98 is now nostalgia in the way that 96 and 94 was nostalgia. I keep banging on about Ronaldinho as one of the key figures of football because there is a whole generation of player like uh, Jaden Sancho says that his hero was Ronaldinho. But because he was from the pre-clip era of Twitter... We have less of Ronaldinho than we have about Lionel Messi. He's a, an agent of Qatar. It's a shame. Um, but one thing Scotland is very, very good at is producing coaches. Um, Largs, or Inverclyde, as it's also known, produced nine gaffers who started in dugouts in the 2011-12 English Premier League season. Can you name them? I'll give it a go anyway. There was Fer- Ferguson, obviously. Fergie, Dugleish. Um, this is in my book, so I should be able to. Moyes. Moyes. Steve Keane of Blackburn. How many am I out there? Uh, that is four. Uh, actually, I'm tempted to look at my book. I know where it is as well. You're, you're welcome to look. Uh, I can give you some clues. So Brendan, Brendan Rogers, Owen Coyle, Alex McLeish. Yep, so there's another. Another couple. One has just retired and one likes going uh, motor racing. Yeah, Hodgson and VS Boss. Ding, ding. Very good. You have successfully won a copy of your book, which is... Uh, Ten ninety nine in paperback, three ninety nine uh, on Kindle. Although if you are Kindle Unlimited, if you is that going to be there indefinitely as a Kindle Unlimited book? Well, it's going to be there till October. Kindle Unlimited, then then I get the chance to look at that again and decide whether. So obviously, I have to balance out whether it's advantageous to do that or to be able to give away complimentary copies, which I can't do at the moment while it's um, obviously. On Kindle Unlimited, I have to. I think I can give away thirty percent of the book. I haven't come. I haven't even created a file which would allow me to give away thirty percent of the book. So I thought I'll probably just stick with um, not giving away anything at the moment. And then in October, it will depend wh- which way is going to be more helpful for me to promote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Craig Brown is not in the Ali McLeod school of management. He seems to be very much in the Jock Steen. Alex Ferguson, Andy Roxburgh style. Do you think Steve Clark and you are you are biased here is the best Scotland manager since Craig Brown? Yeah, I think he definitely is. Um, I'm biased because I saw what he did for Kilmarnock. It was nothing short of a football miracle. Um, I, I described that 
period where Kilmarnock had struggled really. Clark came in and, and the club were fighting relegation year in, year out, and he didn't buy anybody. He really he wasn't giving anybody a couple of loanies, Greg Stewart, Liam Miller. Not so more or less the same team and, and we became what we became, I've discussed it already. Can I just so, mention I think I forgot to do this earlier. Goalkeeper, current Austrian and Watford number one, Daniel Backman. Backman, really good goalie, and that, that just shows you that the level that he had is that, that he was a tremendous loan signing. And last season, statistically, we had we were so bad. Goalkeeper was why we were relegated. If there was anything that, that caused Commander's relegation, tactically or positionally, squad wise, it was goalkeeper. We were just hopeless in, in contrast with Backman, who was. Fantastic. Uh, but I only did that because I didn't mention it in the first half. But yeah, uh, Steve Clark amazingly has adopted the three-five-two. Uh, that's a way to get Tierney and Robertson in the team. But it was interesting to note that Craig Brown had that. He it was a very coachy kind of style because you had the extra defender and you had the wide midfielders. And it's very interesting to note that Clark has seen that as the way to get the best out of the Scotland team. That was very interesting because Clark didn't play that way for Kilmarnock and hadn't been known to play a 3-5-2 and it was the, the formation, as you just said, that, that brought Scotland success under Craig Brown had got us to our last major tournament. It just seemed... Yeah, it was another one of those parallels that, that I uncovered when writing the book. didn't really dawn on me fully until I was I was I had embarked on, on trying to create the book just how similar Clark had set up his team as, as to what, what Craig Brown had done back in the mid to late 90s. And if you want um, an example of the, the era of this book, it mentions uh, Scotland Belarus and it had to be pushed back a day. Why? Princess Diana, uh, her funeral in 1997. So, yeah, which led to, the, I mean, obviously the, the the death of, of Princess Diana in the car accident had led to a week of national mourning in the home nations and Craig Brown was, was under real pressure about what was going to happen with this fixture. He didn't have much information. It, it would appear he's written a bit about it in his autobiographies. He didn't have much information to go on and he made an announcement on television that the Scotland game would go ahead to the best of his knowledge and then the announcement was made in the funeral and he looked, I think he felt as if he was made to look quite insensitive, but he was only trying to manage the kind of unmanageable. So yeah, that was that was some of the context. There seemed to be a lot happened during that qualification. It wasn't it wasn't a, a straightforward route to the finals for Scotland. Ultimately, we, we played the game the next day, I think, on the Sunday. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah. And won 4-0, one of our better better wins in modern times. And then, of course, there was the game in Tallinn, which I'd completely forgotten was in 96, 97. Yeah. Oh, yeah, another. Where Scotland, during that qualification campaign, ended up as the only team on the pitch, only one team in Tallinn. It was the famous quote as the, the Tatlami were singing on the terraces. Um, yeah, the, the Estonian Estonians had decided that they weren't happy with rearranged kickoff time. Scotland weren't happy with poor floodlighting. To cut a long story short, um, FIFA changed the kickoff time. Estonian FA weren't happy. Scotland turned up for the match. Estonia didn't. 
<laughs> and um, the referee well, after three seconds. Unreal. So Scotland <laughs> on the on the pitch fully kitted and afternoon descended into chaos. But there was only one team in Tallinn. Uh, thank you, Neil exactly. Doherty, for, for popping into the football library. I must get your professional opinion on one thing, because you do mention Inverting the Pyramid by Jonathan Wilson. Don't worry, Jonathan Wilson's collected works are in the football library. But I do have what is called the Vardy Bar. A footballer's memoir has to be more exciting, interesting or impactful than Jamie Vardy's book, which, I mean, he's had a hell of a story, but the book is not great. You mentioned several Scottish footballers' autobiographies, including Jim Layton, Andy Gorham, Craig Brown, Paul Lambert, I think you mentioned as well. Are there any books that are better than others that should definitely be read by a wider audience than a Scotland football fan? Yeah, I think Archie McPherson's book, Adventures in the Golden Age, is just a fantastic memoir of... He obviously worked as a correspondent for the, the six tournaments that we've mentioned, six World Cups that Scotland qualified for between 74 and 98. In the end, he was working for Eurosport by the time France 98 came around. Just a fantastic writer and was there, he lived it. So it's a unique, it's a unique story. Only he could have probably told maybe one or two others, um, correspondents, journalists, but it's just, if, if you're going to read any book, apart from mine, <laughs> um, about this subject, Andy Gorham as well, his autobiography is just oft brutally honest, and if you're going to write an autobiography, that's the way to do it, he just he just goes for the jugular from the beginning, and in, in the most brutally honest fashion, you could you could do an autobiography, and so I would recommend that, those two probably, Johnny. Thank you very much. Um, the, as in, as far as honest autobiographies, we're gearing up for the release of Troy Deeney's book. We know Troy Deeney's story, but this is the first time that a working class lad from Chelmsley Wood has had the chance to put his story on paper in his own words, rather than mediated through a journalist. I don't know if you hear much of Troy Deeney up there because he's not much of an international, uh, famously said Arsenal's defenders lacked bollocks um, in the past. But do you, do you, you obviously follow Premier League football, so you will know all about Troy and about Watford. Yeah, obviously, everybody's seen his famous promotion winning goal, and I saw his, his book was in the hot new releases, so it's mm. not one that I've, I've picked up. But I, interestingly, I have to uh, correct your facts. It got us to the final. We lost the final to Palace after extra time. That's how. Oh, did you? That's how interesting it is. Yeah, we scored this goal. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. It just means that Troy has got a chapter of his book, and uh, Ikechi Anya. If you look at how he controlled the ball, he is as pivotal to uh, that goal as Dini was. Uh, Ikechi Anya, I think, is without a club at the moment. But Scotland international scored for Scotland. Were you there when he scored? Again, I mentioned my dad a lot. He seems to have had better Scotland experiences with me he, than me. He was he was at that game in Germany. Is it Germany that was yeah. actually Germany's. Yeah, I think if I remember right, was that not Germany's first game after winning the World Cup? I think so. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. I'm fascinated by that German team. You know, but at that point, my, my attention was really taken by what Germany had achieved in 2014. But have the program. I wasn't. I wasn't in attendance. 
Um, Anya is considered highly regarded as a Scotland international. Unlikely he'll play again for Scotland, but yeah, very highly regarded. Very smart man. Uh, very smart parents too. And his brother is a qualified doctor. Uh, you dedicate the book to your dad, so it's perhaps nice that we finished by mentioning him. Will you be going to watch Kilmarnock with him this season? Yeah, we were at yeah, we were at Kilmarnock versus Ayr together. We, we, we still go to the home games together. Yeah. Our season tickets are, are next to each other. And the million dollar question: What does he think of the book? He likes it. He yeah. was uh, my critique my critique partner, so it helped me a lot with some proofreading and early chapters that are sent through to him. It's a superb book, and it uh, reminds me of Thank the you, great Johnny. story. Uh, of the World Cup 98, in particular Scotland's journey thereof. Uh, Neil Doherty, enjoy the season. Uh, and uh, it might not be Qatar, but if you do turn up in 2024 to one of the matches, maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, much appreciated. Thanks for asking me on. Absolute pleasure. <laughs>